presents Called to Practice Gratitude, the reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, November 19th, 2023. Holy One, giver of life, gather our hearts and minds as one. Make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts a doorway to your presence. Amen. This year, my husband David and I are once again hosting Thanksgiving. My brother, his wife, and their daughters and their husbands, and one little one, little Luna, who just turned one. A couple of our cousins and one of our sons is flying across the country. I'm not quite sure whether there'll be 12 or 15 or 17 of us, so not a very large gathering, like I know some of you all host, but more people than we've had to dinner inside our house since before COVID. I am deeply grateful that they are all coming, and I'm a little bit anxious, And also, I wake in the night wondering if the whole thing, family members driving hours from California, flying across the country, to gather for a bountiful meal that is more than any of us needs, I wonder if it is sacrilegious to do this when so many people are suffering so deeply. When so many innocent lives, old and young, in Ukraine and Sudan and Congo, and Israel and Gaza are being destroyed by terrorism and war. When so many innocent people, old and young, in San Francisco and Philadelphia and Portland, Oregon, are facing day after day of homelessness and hunger. I wonder if it is a sacrilegious thing to do when it feels like we are living in apocalyptic times. Time whose horizon does not roll from season to season endlessly, but whose horizon teeters on the edge of a cliff. Or as Ian described it to me earlier this week, time that rolls along like a river, but a river in which it has become impossible to ignore the waterfall just around the next bend. You can hear it. You can just begin to feel the thunder of it. This time that many have described as both wearying and hard to sustain with its odd mixture of being hyper alert and also deeply tired. It is perhaps fitting then that today's lectionary lands us right back in the Gospel of Matthew's so-called little apocalypse, those somewhat terrifying stories that Jesus tells there at the end of his life. I have never loved this parable. I mean, at all. I don't like it. It reads more like an episode of The Apprentice, that TV show. I only needed 10 minutes of it one time to know that I disliked it intensely for all the reasons. This parable sounds more like that, like The Apprentice, than it does like a story that the Jesus, I think I know, would tell. Instead of good news to the poor and freedom for the oppressed, we hear, you didn't take enough risk. You're fired. Take that talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to all those who have, more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. It kind of makes me want to run, and not in the good way. 
It makes me want to run away and hide. It makes me empathize deeply with that third servant. It sounds like, and indeed has been used as a justification for, systemized economic oppression, the exact kind of dominant system that the people were living under in Jesus' day. It sounds a little bit like unregulated capitalism that rewards CEOs with compensation 400 times as great as that of the workers. So I object to this parable on moral and theological grounds. It just seems too discordant with the rest of the teachings of Jesus in all four of the Gospels, but especially here in Matthew with the central teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, that heart of Jesus' teaching. But it is here in our Bible. So I'm trying to make sense of it. Some context within the gospel where it appears. Here we are in the last long teaching of Jesus, delivered after his rather tempestuous day in the temple when he did that thing where he knocked over the tables and chased the money changers out of the temple grounds. It appears just days before the events of Holy Week. Jesus has alienated and been challenged by the leaders of all the various Jewish factions, and he seems to have caught the attention of the Roman soldiers who are in town to keep the peace over the Passover. It's an intense moment in the arc of the story of Jesus' life among his disciples. Jesus seems to know that he doesn't have much time left, and these urgent stories capture that that sense of impending change. And then we have the context of the community of Matthew to whom this is written, living some 50 or more years after the life of Jesus, after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, after the dispersal of the population, a group that was drawn out of the Jewish community but is now living in Gentile territory. This is a community that has suffered oppression from without and division within. This is a community for whom the question, who is to be trusted, is a very live one. Sounds familiar. Who do I trust to tell me the truth about the world? Who is trustworthy to me? Whose words are authentic? Who's preaching fake news? Even so, given all that context, where is the good news in a story about those who have been given a lot and then they use it with whatever combination of luck and skill to double what they have received and then being rewarded with even more? A fearful one who had been entrusted with less than the others, but still, he's been given a lot. He's cowering in fear and loses it all. He's punished for his fear. He's punished for having simply protected what he had been given. For generations, we have read the, the text in this way, as an allegory in which the master is God, and these three servants are disciples who have been entrusted with a graduated amount of gifts, skill, good news, what we call talent, which is not what the word means in, in the text, but a parable is not the same thing as an allegory. 
there is no need to assign parts. That actually impedes our understanding. The whole story as a whole is meant to capture a truth. It's meant to give us a little bit of a gut punch, actually. Biblical scholar A.J. Levine reminds us to ask not what does this parable mean, but what does this parable do? To me, this parable strikes urgency and movement and daring. It is daring us. What if we read this story not as a prophetic promise of what will happen to people when they get to the, to the day of judgment and they've buried the things that they should have used? What if we read it not as terrifying, but as a description of what does happen to people here and now in this world, in our world and in the world of the disciples? People now, us, trying fumblingly to live a life that belongs to God's hidden but already here kingdom. If we read it this way, we can set aside the simplistic idea that whoever holds most power in the story must be a stand-in for God. A man decides to go on a long trip, so long that it makes sense to leave his servants in charge of everything. He gives each of them a different portion of the estate. But let's just remember that a talent is a huge sum of money. It's like saying to someone, here's a million dollars. So the first servant gets five million dollars, and the second one gets two million. The last servant, who got only one talent, still got a million dollars. This outrageous hyperbole was meant to shock Jesus' hearers. No one gives their servant or their slave five million dollars. Here, handle this. Which makes me ask the question, what is this extraordinary treasure that we've been given? It isn't five million dollars. What is it? What is the time, talent, or opportunity to do good, to be part of the work of mercy and justice? Maybe the treasure is the gospel of good, the good news of God's presence. Even those who feel that they've received only a small portion compared to what others have received have what amounts to a stupendous amount to give, create, and build. And isn't this what it does feel like to be human? When we are frightened, when we look around at what others have, the resources of family, love, creativity, and talent that they have received, not for any special reason, they've just received it. And maybe we haven't. Doesn't it make us look at our own endowments and think, well, that isn't enough. I'm not enough. I don't have enough here to risk anything. What if I lose it? I already don't have enough. What if I fail? How easy it is to turn inward to stay still, hiding what we have received, keeping it for ourselves. All those resources we are meant to offer up to make the world more creative, more loving, more merciful, and more just, holding and hiding it all in fear that if we offer it, it will be diminished. It will be whittled away. We won't have enough. The experience of the divine that we have had, each of us, that we might 
offer for someone else's nourishment, we sometimes hide for fear that we will be mocked or for fear that if we use the word Christian, we'll be equated with things we don't agree with. And so we might hide that word. We might be a little shy about sharing. This is a text that is not meant just for individuals, but for us as a, as a group, for the church as a whole. I think about the treasure given to the, earth, to the church, to each congregation, to us. And then when those others, those really rich ones, who started out with so much more than we had, you know, those big churches, the ones with the huge buildings and the large endowment, with four ministers and two youth groups and five choirs, when they get going, when they go out in all their confidence and bravado, and they offer up what they have to the world, and not only do they not lose it, They don't lose what they started with, but they increase. They increase in all those riches of creativity and talent and love so absurdly piled upon them. And they don't feel the least bit guilty about it. They're just joyful. We must watch what that does to us internally. If we have been the cautious one, if we have been hiding what we are afraid of losing, all of a sudden feeling like, even the little we had is gone. And we are outside, cold, alone, not knowing how to speak. This text is for us. It is an invitation for us. This is not a prophecy or a threat, but a description. We can await the day when God's realm is fully established on earth, and in the meantime, live out loud toward that kingdom offering all we have and all we are into the world. The judgment is not coming, it is here, but so is the invitation. The invitation to come and live as part of God's realm right now, and whatever you have and whoever you are, dare to offer it. Little Kairos, tucked away in our neighborhood, has much to offer the world. We are living in times that feel anything but ordinary, and our longing for ordinary is very real. But here in our tradition, we have this odd, difficult, urgent story that Jesus offered to his disciples in a critical time, and Matthew reported to his community living in their critical time, and which has come down to us in our strained, anxious, apocalyptic, critical time, a time when it is tempting to despair. This text comes to us and reminds us that we have been given gifts, each individually and us as a community and us as the United Church of Christ. We have been given abundant opportunities to advance Jesus's project of blessing the world. We have been given creativity and love and mercy and skills. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are gifted and a gift to the world. It is enough and more than enough, and as you give it, it will grow. The growth comes in the giving. In this reading of our story, I hear echoes of the sort of mutuality that the Haudenosaunee people found, 
They found it not just among people, but among all creation, based on that same recognition of our interdependence, to which the best response is gratitude. We are called, even in the midst of these apocalyptic, critical times, to practice gratitude. Gratitude while we are anxious, while we are resentful, while we are disappointed. Gratitude while we are suffering. Gratitude even when others are suffering and we feel helpless to assist them. Our gratitude is not at their expense, but so that we can be reminded of the web of life to which we all belong together. Gratitude will ground us in the reality that just to be is a blessing and that we are part of a web of giving and receiving going on around us all the time. Gratitude can be a subversive practice, reminding us about this mutual dependence, that we are worthy of giving and receiving, and that our capitalist way of measuring worth is based on ignoring the reality of our interdependence. Gratitude can remind us that we are not alone, not when we are suffering, and that others are not meant to be alone when they are suffering, and we may be the antidote to their loneliness. Gratitude can strengthen us to fight against injustice with hope and love. It can help us recognize those who are working alongside us. It can remind us to look out and be grateful. Gratitude, which can feel like a self-indulgence in an apocalyptic hour, can be the doorway to the reciprocity and justice that are eternal life. Amen. Listen, listen, listen. listen.